Deep in the imagination, there's a crossroads, a space where curiosity and inspiration intersect and give birth to ideas. A space where music, science fiction, comic books, and pop culture inform the mind of what is and what could be. This is Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. In each episode, legendary journalist Jeff Boucher welcomes the biggest names in genre entertainment for an expansive dive into all things pop culture. Journey with Jeff as he explores the latest news and recommendations of the hottest releases across entertainment with his most trusted confidants. You are now entering deep space. Heavy Metal presents Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. Well, here we are. It's the end of 2020, the year that everybody really wants to end. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's good to uh, have everybody back. I'm Jeff Boucher. This is uh, Mind Space, and I'm here with our producer, Evan Kopp. How are you, Evan? Good, Jeff. How are you? I'm doing well. It's, it's, it's a strange time to be alive, my friend. Um, this is our 19th episode, I believe. And uh, as this year has come to a close, we are all very, very ready for 2021, just like everybody else in the world. But uh, before we leave this one behind, since this was our first year here at Mindspace, the podcast that brought Evan and I together and, and uh, is coming to you through the auspices of Heavy Metal Magazine, as we've been working on this, we thought it'd be a good time to pause and look back and, and maybe uh, reflect on some of the, f the fun moments that we've had and, and even put a few of them together into this Christmas episode that we're hoping is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're gonna get, but it's a sampler and, and a great way for people that uh, have been enjoying the show to revisit it, but also maybe a great entry point for friends of yours. So if you're listening now, just think of all the people you know in the world and shouldn't they be listening to? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I think it's a great, like you said, it's a great episode for new listeners to kind of catch up or old listeners to kind of remember. And uh, so we've picked a, a couple of segments from a couple of episodes from the past. These aren't the best of though, because then that would mean that the other ones aren't good. Correct. No, 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 <laughs> not at all. <laughs> and I won't go on record as saying that, but this is, you know, these are some memorable moments from episodes, whether it's someone saying something I don't think they've necessarily said very much on record or some fun moments we've had with some of the guests, you know, it's kind of just like my personal pick. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's a great way to kind of get a good uh, overall glance at, you know, what we do here at Mind Space. Yeah, that's great. I can't wait to see what you picked. Uh, I actually, I don't know the, the final uh, group. Uh, how many did you, how many are there? There are five that we're going to okay, be Okay, so there's five. I'll be interested yeah. to see where we start, uh, where we end, and yeah. where we go in between. <laughs> so this first one that we have um, is from our very first episode that we did with an old friend of yours, Malcolm McDowell. Yeah. So um, in, this, in this moment of the episode, he is uh, talking a little bit about Kubrick behind the scenes, and you bring up this, you ask him about the slide rule, and it starts there, and it kind of goes from there, and completely different direction and we learned some things about you know their dynamic that I had never heard of before and it's it's very interesting kind of look behind the curtain of making of A Clockwork Orange. Yeah and A Clockwork Orange uh, enjoying its 50th anniversary uh, this upcoming year 2021 and uh, uh, just a, a movie that was uh, it's such a landmark and such a powerful film and uh, 
And Malcolm is such a, a raconteur. He has such great stories. And uh, it was great to start the show with him. It was really cool that he came on uh, this podcast. And, and I'll always be appreciative of that. So uh, I'm looking forward to hearing that. Yeah. And uh, hopefully we'll have him back. You know, he's on that new show, Truth Seekers. So maybe Absolutely. we can get him to talk about that a little bit or, you know, maybe on the 50th anniversary. I'd love to have him on with Shatner. That would be, <laughs> the, that would be the dream is to get uh, Captain Kirk reunited with the man that, that offed him. Yes, definitely. And he actually does talk a little bit about that in the original episode. So that's a, that's a good story as well. Um, and so without further ado, here is the section from episode one with Malcolm McDowell. What about, um, you, you told me a story about a slide rule once, and, and later I was like, did, did you really mean he had a slide rule? He actually walked yeah. around with it? Wow. Yes, I know. I mean, I'd forgotten how to use those things. Uh, we, of course, did it at school, you know, for yeah. geometry or something. But, um, no, we, you know, we were... What we do it in the narration, I do a piece and then we go off into the garden. He had this tent with a ping pong table and we play ping pong and it was very intense. And I was good <laughs> at ping pong. So I'd never, I'd never play him at chess because of course he could run rings around me and he was a great chess player. Uh -huh. But at ping pong, I had him. That's and great. so, and he'd, he'd go away and think about what had happened and then he'd come back with a new way to serve which was basically all bullshit and it was just you know him doing some weird little physical deal but the ball just came over the same way and I'd whack it back you know? <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, and we do this for the whole two weeks you know the doing the narration I it was a two-week thing and so um, Oh, a few months go by and he's editing and uh, apparently they're ready to show the film. And I said to my agent, well, I'm going out to see Stanley for dinner tonight. So he went, oh, would you mention him that he's, um, he's forgotten to pay you for the narration, the two weeks you, and I went, really? He goes, yes, no, he never got, you never got paid for that. And I went, oh my God, no, I will mention it to him. So here we had a lovely evening and, I'm getting ready to go by the front door. And I said, oh, by the way, my agent tells me, Stanley, you never paid me for the two weeks of the narration I did for the film. And um, he gets out the slide rule. I'm standing out of his top pocket. <laughs> looks at the side, does a few calculations on it. Or of course, it was just for show. Yeah, right. Looks at me and goes, I'll pay you a week. I went a week. It was two weeks. He goes, but yes, but one week was ping pong. <laughs> <laughs> and he's not going to pay you to beat him. <laughs> no, and he didn't pay me. But I mentioned it to Warner Brothers in London. I was mentioning it to one of them. And they went, uh, okay. And I got a check from them. Oh, no they kidding. Sent it, yeah. They sent it to me. Didn't tell Stanley. Wow. So I didn't mention it again. Isn't that funny? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so when would have been the last time that you saw Stanley? I don't know. Yeah. I have no idea. Um, Specific, yeah. You no, know, we didn't really get on. There was, um, yeah. unfortunately, we did get on in the filming. It was amazing. But, you know, he took, 
he really he took me to the cleaners as a young actor and uh you know when i found out i wasn't happy uh, i was really unhappy well, and yeah, uh, of course not yeah but of course the family now uh, deny it and, and all the rest of it but of course the, you know they don't know I, I said to you know stanley's very nice and i'm great friends with the family i love christiana yeah and the children you know and, and i'm still in touch even with vivian who's rather um you know she's rather outside the family now but um uh jan harlan who's uh, stanley's brother-in-law yeah. he uh he does he doesn't believe me to this day but it's true that Stanley, um, you know, that uh, Warner Brothers had given me two and a half percent of the film that they passed on to Stanley to give to me. And Stanley just called me up and said, no, Warners won't, they won't give you a piece. And I went, really? That's, but that's what I got in my last movie. You know, Stanley, you told me I'd get what I got on my last film. Uh -huh. He goes, yeah, but they won't, it's nothing to do with me. And I said, well, why didn't you pay it out of your piece? You, you've got a big chunk. He goes, no, I can't do that. And that was sort of the end of it. A year later, I come to um, meet, you know, the guys at, in Hollywood uh, at, at the studio at, at Warner's. And it was being run, Warner Brothers was being run by uh, Brown and uh, Zanuck and Brown at the time, two sure. very successful independent, you know, they'd done the sting and all that. Jaws, stuff. yeah. Exactly, Jaws. Um, they said to me, well, Malcolm, you're going to be a very rich young man. And I thought, well, they're offering me another movie or something. I said, why is that? And they went, well, your two and a half percent, which we gave Stanley for you. And I went, well, I went, what? He never passed it on. And they just looked at each other, smiled, and went, well, isn't that just like Stanley? Wow. Wow. And I knew in that moment that I, there's no way anyone is going to believe me. It was never written down. Right. You know, and when I came to do my deal, he wouldn't deal with my agent. You know, I kept saying, just call my agent. I feel very uncomfortable talking about what I'm worth. Yeah. You know, it should be done by somebody else, a third party, who's looking after my interests. Sure. He went, I don't deal with, uh, I want, I'm dealing with you, you're the principal. And in the end I said, well, just give me what I got on my last movie. He goes, what was that? And I went, 100,000 and two and a half percent. He goes, okay, the hundred's okay, I'll get back to you on the other. Then months went by, he goes, no, they won't do it but they had done it and he just oh. kept it. Yeah, and, and if Dick Zanuck told you that, I mean, Dick, I know, I knew him very well yeah. and he, he's Did a you? very- Very straight guy, nice man, very nice man. Very honorable guy. So like, if, uh -huh. if he said that, I, I, I tend to believe it for sure. And so that was from episode number one that we recorded back over the summer, which seems like 17 years ago. And now we're moving to something a little more are a little different, which is with the great Mark Guggenheim, who had just ended his time at Arrow and is now, I mean, you've seen him in the news, he's everywhere this year. Um, he's coming out with the new LA Law, which is super exciting. First, my mom calls it La La. And, uh, <laughs> um, so we look forward to 
seeing what he does with that show and being a past lawyer, I'm sure he knows the ins and outs of that business anyways. So, yeah, Mark is a great, uh, TV writer and producer, and he's had a tremendous amount of success working with Greg Berlanti and they're responsible for the TV shows. Uh, in large part, they're responsible for the TV shows on the CW that, uh, adapt the DC universe. And, uh, I've known him for years and he, uh, is, is such an articulate thinker. Uh, you know, uh, he not only talks about creativity, but he's so very articulate when he's talking about the creative process. And, and uh, I always learn something when I'm talking to Mark. So I, I love talking to him. And uh, he's definitely going to join us back on the show in 2021. And, uh, you know, if we uh, get him to take us out for drinks sometimes, he's definitely treating because, yeah, that, those TV shows <laughs> seem to be doing pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. He's got that lawyer money and that TV money. So just ain't right. <laughs> well, I picked a section from his episode, which was episode number two, actually, um, in which he is talking about the transition of one medium to another, which is a question that you had asked him. And so he talks a little bit about Watchmen. He talks a little bit about Green Lantern. He talks a little bit about, you know, some other media as well. But it's, it's you know, someone who has taken a lot of media from one to another, He's he offers some input on that. So that sounds good. Yeah. So without further ado, here is Mark Guggenheim talking about transitioning media from one format to another. And what, what have you learned about the difference between the, uh, the rhythm and the, and the necessities of story when it comes to, say, a comic book story and a TV show? Like if there's a great comic book story, uh, how often is it not a great TV show? That's a Good question. Well, I'll, I'll take it. Are we on the record here or are we off the record? Still? We're definitely on the record. I, I mean, I, it's funny, like, I've gotten into trouble for saying this in the past, but I, I think the Watchmen movie is a great, it's a great test case. Because mm. for the people who are like, we want a panel to frame faithful translation, I say, you've got one. It's Watchmen. Right. How'd that work out for you? Uh, for me, my favorite parts of Watchmen were all the stuff that changed from the comic. And that... Yeah. That there's no diminishing my love for the comic, but my attitude is a faithful translation of any story being told in medium A to medium B, that translation still has got to, it has to reflect the pros and cons of the medium it's being translated into. Mm -hmm. um, you know, everybody like wants, you know, like, like when we were doing arrow, it's like, well, why doesn't he have the Robin hood hat and the goatee? Well, the Robin hood hat would be really silly. The, the goatee we did, yeah. you know, experiment with, we did, we did some Photoshop tests and, and ultimately it just came down to Steven. Like, what do you want to do? And he, he ultimately decided he, he didn't want to go that route, but you've got to be mindful of the fact that you're going from one medium to another and, and there's different benefits and there's different challenges and some people do it well, some people do it poorly. I've, I've certainly been involved in both types of projects, <clears throat> Green Lantern, um, you know, so it's, you know, I, I, I understand the, the tricks. I also think, by the way, I think there's a trick to, Oh, I'll, you know, I'm going to give you an example. I'll, I'm going to, I'll, I'll, it's funny. I haven't talked about this in forever. Actually, I've never talked about this, but Rick Riordan, Rick Riordan, uh, the is. author of the Percy Jackson novels, you know, he's, he's constantly on Twitter trashing the movies. 
And, you know, and here's the, but here's the story he doesn't know. So the second book, Sea of Monsters, sure. I was uh, hired to do a rewrite on. And mm-hmm. the circumstances were actually kind of interesting. The first draft was written by a writing team who have won at least one Oscar and have been nominated for several more. In other words, these are better writers than me. Well, okay. And their draft, the only thing wrong with their draft was that it was insanely faithful to the book. Mm. So faithful to the book, in fact, that the head of the studio at the time thought that the movie was unproducible. Not unproducible from a budgetary standpoint, like not good. Right. And there's a reason why it wasn't good. You know, Rick is an amazing writer, and he's a very facile writer. Mm-hmm. And in prose, particularly a YA novel, you can get away with a lot of things. You can get away with a lot of coincidences. You can get away with some character stuff that doesn't quite make sense. But once you try to translate that into another medium, in this case a feature film, mm-hmm. you, you kind of can expose a lot of things that the facile writing was covering up. Mm. And... That fundamentally was why the movie had to change from the novel. You know, that being said, look, there's stuff, there's stuff in the movie that was like, wasn't my idea. Like, I felt it was important to maintain not absolute fidelity, mm-hmm. but be true, be faithful to the spirit yeah. of, the, of the piece. I still feel like we told a story of, of Percy, you know, and his friends you know, and and that did follow the novel, yeah. you know, it, it followed the novel. But yes, things unfolded in a slightly different way. But we, I think we all felt at the time we were being true to the spirit of Rick's writing, if not the actual letter of it. Yeah, no, no, you know, and that does make sense. Because if you think about it, one of the reasons, I mean, why, going back, uh, all right, take Watchmen, for example, why is Watchmen so great, the book? Um, one of the reasons is because you know, Alan Moore and, and Dave Gibbons took advantage of the medium a thousand so percent. powerfully and yes. so intuitively and, and in ways that no one had ever really done before with the psychological reports and the book excerpts and the, yeah. uh, you know, the, just the uh, toggling back and forth to the black freighter and all the oh. things that a comic book can do that other medium can't. Another well, medium. One, can't. Well, one of the things, I mean, God, we, we don't have the time to cover all the brilliant things Damon did with the Watchmen TV series, but yeah. I feel like one of the brilliant things he did was he recognized it was a different medium. Mm-hmm. He recognized it was Watchmen, the television show. And that's why you have a television show within a television show in yeah. that series. Um, you know, he took the those those elements that you know, that, that Moore and Gibbons had, but he changed them to rec- to acknowledge the fact that he was working in a different medium. And when you, when you don't do that, I, I would, you know, look, a lot of fans come at me on Twitter, like you deviated from the comics this way, you deviated from the comics that way. And I'm like, be careful what you wish for, right. because those like, you know, those ultimate fidelity, you know, sort of exercises, I want to say they never work. I can't think of a circumstance where it's happened and it's worked out perfectly. So that's why, like, you know, to, to Rick, I, I go, I'm sorry. The studio had a draft that was, you know, almost page for frame your novel and um, it, it didn't work. 
dodge that bullet because it might have been you know well you know i I think like you like less maybe you know yeah and then look rick is rick is adapting you know his his own novels for disney plus now and uh, i think he's you know he's going to discover a lot of this you know he's going to he's going to discover like writing a novel is a very singular experience um where you have to work with no one except your editor in television and film there's cast there's crews there's department heads there's producers You've got to, you know, there, there's a, a whole host of, of people that you have to open up the process to. Sure. And they're not always going to be in lockstep with you in terms of treating the source material as a sacred text. Yeah. And then there's also, uh, um, as you're saying that, it, it, it makes me think, too, is like when you're reading a novel, you're seeing things through the author's eyes. I mean, they can, yes. they can change their eyes to make themselves seem like somebody else, but you're, they're, they're, they're telling you what you're seeing and you're, you're taking your information from them, but yeah. then TV and films, you watch with your own eyes. So there, there's right. a, there's a persuasion that needs to be taken place. You're more of a, a unfaithful observer as a, you are. a screen yeah. observer, I think. It's a different, yeah, that's the thing. It's a, it's a really good point because the, the, not just the production or the creation of one thing from one medium into another is different. The audience interpretation of it, the audience consumption of it, is also very different. Um, And you have to allow for these things, you know, and and you, you know, there's a reason why comics are different from movies that are different from television shows. It's really interesting when things sync up uh, with a particular medium or with even a particular technology. And like in, 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 for instance, uh, you know, uh, like the music of Hank Williams. One Mm -hmm. of the reasons that Hank Williams was like the first major national country star is that it had to do with, I mean, there's a lot of reasons, but one of them is you had that really high-pitched steel pedal through everything, and yeah. you could hear it in a crowded bar. It was the best yeah. jukebox music you could play because you could hear it. Um, it's amazing when things like that happen. It's funny. like I, My musical vocabulary starts and ends with Billy Joel, but um, <laughs> Glass Houses, uh, which came out in 1980, that considered his rock and roll album, but what that came from, kind of what your point with Hank Williams was, was he started, he was touring more and he was playing larger arenas. Hmm. So he needed music that would play well in a stadium, right. uh, you know, in a, in a large space. And that's, that's rock. It's a louder sound, yeah. less, less ballads, less sort of quote unquote soft rock. You know, that's the thing. It's like, it, it's, all these and, and the, I, I believe very very firmly, both as a writer and as a fan, that these these changes are good. Yeah. Like I I will say I don't I don't understand the fandom who who gets very vocal and very angry about like this was not a you know exact replica of the thing that I love. As a fan myself, I've never wanted that. Like right. like I said, my favorite parts of the Watchmen movie were the beginning, the credit sequence, and the end. Yeah, me too. Uh, you know, and by the way, I think that end, I, this is going to sound apocalyptic. It's better. It's better. It's, it's better. better. It's tighter. It, it makes more sense. I mean, you know, God bless them. They, they really, they figured out a way to build a better mousetrap with that ending. It's, it, you're absolutely right. And, and I, I think that that's not a, a rare opinion anymore. I think that the, oh, good, the, good. I think that that's, that's defendable. Uh, I used I feel, to, I I used to be scared way. to say it. Um, yeah. I used to be yeah. scared to say it. Well, and know? it's interesting the, the another example of that is uh, Coraline where, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, Neil Gaiman is one of the greatest writers to ever yeah. write. Um, and absolutely. 
they made it better by adding that friend character. The, the, that, you it know, made it I, so much better. That, that's the thing. It's like, I mean, I look at like, look at the Godfather. Like, you know, the, the Godfather, you know, everyone forgets, but, you know, that was an adaptation of a novel. Yeah. And if you've ever taken the time to read the novel, I don't think there's a single person on the planet who <laughs> thinks that the novel is better than the movie. No. Uh, I mean, you know, so it's, I mean, sometimes it is an opportunity, like with the Coraline example and like with Godfather, to to make it better and improve on things. Sure. You know? We could have a discussion about books, which books are better than movies. So I think um, From Here to Eternity, the film is better mm -hmm. than the book. Agreed. The Firm. The Firm. Uh, the movie is that I can't sign off on. I, I, the ending with the mail fraud is clever. I like the book more. Okay. I like the book we'll more. agree to disagree on that. Yep. Godfather, for sure. Gone with the Wind. Uh, and I don't even like the movie. I, I never, I never read the book, so I can't, I can't, yeah. uh, I never read the book, so I can't speak to, you know, I only have the movie to go, to go by. I'm trying to think like, uh, I mean, I would say Misery is the book and the movie are equally good for different reasons. Yeah. Presumed Innocent. I didn't read Shawshank. Neither did I. Neither did I. But that's also, that's a different kettle of fish. That's an interesting kettle of fish because that was a short story. Oh, yeah, that's that right. Was, no. That was Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. That's right. Uh, yeah. That got turned into a movie and, and really sort of, you know, found, you know, more, more breath to it. Um, it's, it's, yeah, I find it, I find it kind of fascinating. I mean, it's, it's the, that alchemy, the alchemy of, of taking a property and moving it from one medium to another is, I, I do find it fascinating. I just find yeah. it fascinating as a fan. I do too. And one of the things that, um, I was really excited to talk to you about is the process of uh, adapting something and taking something to a new medium requires that you understand and love, I would think, the, the, the original. You have to. You absolutely, yeah. you, you, you have, you, at the very, very, very least, you have to have respect for it. Right. Um, I think where, I, I will, I'll hasten to say every single time it's fallen short, it's because the person doing the adapting either didn't like it, didn't like the source material, didn't understand the source material, and or didn't respect the source material. Right. And you've got to, you, you, you have to like, you know, I, I look at it as like interpreting a piece of music. Mm -hmm. You have to know the song before right. you can cover it, right. you know? And then you can, you can, I love, I mean, for me, my favorite covers are the ones that really take a lot of license with the source song because otherwise... I'll just listen to the original song. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. the, the ironic ones uh, can sometimes be really the, the most fun. Yeah. So with comic book characters, it, it occurs to me um, that there's a fundamental difference between the classic Marvel characters and the classic DC characters. And it's not 100% or uniform. Uh, and I think we might have talked about this a little before, but I have this theory and I'd like to bounce it off of you. One of the things that I think is that the 1930s characters, uh, which is going to, and 40s characters, which is primarily the DC characters that endured, you know, yeah. I mean, um, they are wired uh, as characters uh, to a European tradition. They're, 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 if you look at the European yep, that's bookshelf, very yep. like the uh, yes. Sherlock Holmes and Dracula yep. and uh, Alan Quartermain and Scarlet Pimpernel, the, yep. they, they are aristocrats. Uh, mm -hmm. they, they are all of, uh, means none of them work. Yep. Um, yep. Listen, many of them are, are orphaned. Exactly. 
And then know, they have this like uh, birthright usually, uh, or mm-hmm. something chooses yes. them, right? Absolutely. Um, and it's so uh, fundamentally different than the Marvel characters. I, I will say I, I feel, and I, I have great affection and love for, you know, both canons. And you've worked with both. And I have worked with both. And I can, I can definitely say Marvel has it easier. Mm-hmm. You know, those are more modern characters. There's not a single domino mask in the bunch. You know, there's, there's no characters whose weakness is the color yellow. You know, and, and that's to take nothing away from what, you know, Marvel, Kevin Feige has done for, you know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I think that will stand the test of time, and I'll fight anyone who thinks that that's not anything short of absolutely brilliant. But, right. uh, you know, when you're handed a DC property to adapt to live action, you, you got to do a little bit more, you know, a, a little more heavy lifting. It's a little, it's a little harder um, yeah. for, for a variety of reasons. You know, part of it's the character, um, like you're talking about, and trying to get some diversity in there, and also diversity of, of origin and point of view. But also, it's the basic look of it. Like, mm. you know, how, how do you make Green Lantern look cool, right. uh, you know, in the 21st century? Um, there's, a, there's a challenge. You know, how do you make that big flying green fist look cool? And I, I think it's, there's, you're just faced with certain, you know, faced with certain challenges. Yeah. Yeah. And like Plastic Man too, like Plastic Man and Green Lantern, I just don't know. Those are so uniquely suited to a comic book page. They are. It kind of goes back to what we were talking about with Watchmen is that I don't even know why you try to make a giant green fist in a movie because nobody wants to see it. It, 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 I I would, you know, left to my own devices, I would avoid the giant green fist today for sure. You know, I think there's a lot of elements from Green Lantern that you can transfer over and, and do quite well, but you know, left to my own devices, the constructs, you'd shoot them practically. Mm-hmm. Like if he has to make a Gatling gun, you bring in a prop Gatling gun. And then in, in post, you add the CG, you know, sheen to it. Uh, you know, you definitely don't do a, uh, you know, a, a CG suit. That's, that's for sure. Uh, I think we all, I think we all agree on that now. Yeah. Um, you know. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was on the set of that movie. I don't know if I ever told you that. Did you really? Know that? No, yeah, I didn't know that. I was on the set very briefly myself. One day. One I day. Was there for, I was there for two. Oh, wow. There you go. There you go. Maybe that's the problem. Did you have the same growing sense of dread that I did? You know, it, it was... By that point, I was so accustomed to not being able to see what the screen was going to look like and mm. superimposing, like, well, don't judge because this is how it looks right. here, but it may look a lot sure. better. Because I don't have the, the insider sophistication uh, yeah. to kind of know what won't work. I totally got that. I totally got that. Yeah, and it's it's very it's tricky. It's I mean to when a when a film, particularly that kind of film, is in such an embryonic stage, it's 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 hard to you know exactly be able to envision how it could work. And then of course you're always going like, maybe maybe it will be better in post. Maybe it'll be better. Right. In, you know. Yeah. But it's funny for as much as I think, you know, it's in Hollywood. It's a cliche to say we'll fix it in post. Sure. The only time that's really true, I think, is when you're fixing it in post along with copious reshoots. Right. You know, um, there's no taking, you know, a sow's ear and turning it into a silk person post. You can, you can make the sow's ear better. You know, yeah. you, can, you can really improve things. You know, Greg Berlanti is like, he's an alchemist in the editing room. I mean, I've seen him literally perform miracles. But, you know, generally speaking, you know, you're, you're only going to be able to raise the thing a letter grade, maybe a letter grade mm. and a half. You're not going to be able to go from an F to an A. Yeah. 
I was just thinking about how terrible it, it would be to watch a movie about a sow's ear. <laughs> well, be... I think right now the sow's ear is the only intellectual property that's not you know spoken <laughs> for at this point. So we may see that coming to a theater near you next year. <laughs> that's the it's the worst name of a character I've ever heard. It is. It is. But also, all the good names are taken too. So yeah. that's the problem. And that was the great Mark Guggenheim. So we look forward to seeing him again and hopefully we'll be doing some fun, you know, kind of breaking the mold things with him in the future. Um, and I have another one for you, Jeff. Which one is that? So here's number three. This is another great episode that we did earlier on. And it was with our first, sorry, our second musician, which was the drummer from Mastodon, Braun Daler. And the two of you guys talked about a whole lot of things, <laughs> but I think my favorite thing was his stories of being on Game of Thrones. And so I picked that section out um, of the episode and it's him telling you how they just randomly, the band Mastodon got to be in not one, but two episodes of Game of Thrones. You know, one of the things that's a uh, heavy metal magazine represented when I was a kid, it was obviously comics. It was, it's, a, it's illustrated fantasy stories and sci-fi stories, but the name also uh, and the ethos of it all uh, incorporated music. And when heavy metal, the movie came out, soundtrack was probably more famous than the movie. Um, so I, I really wanted this podcast for that reason uh, and for other reasons of, about my career. I really want this podcast to have not just comics and film and TV, pop culture, but also the music side. And, and we have had a couple, uh, we've had three music guests, I believe so far, Suzanne Vega and Wayne Coyne from Flaming Lips. Uh, and then the drummer from Mastodon, which we're about to listen to. And he was the first guest that we had on the show, I think that I didn't know before the show. You know, uh, I met him, I meet him on the air when uh, the listener meets him. Uh, so that's always a different type of interview uh, experience. And uh, I was impressed with his creativity and his uh, his organization. The guy gets up early in the morning, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> literally. We, did his, we literally did his, I think that was the earliest interview we'd ever done, which is, yeah. I think we might mention it in the, uh, the actual show, but it's, <laughs> you, don't, you, you don't necessarily really interview musicians at 11 o'clock in the morning no no way like it was like eight o'clock in la wasn't it yeah, yeah actually you're right like 8 a.m yeah. in la i I've, I've never interviewed a rock star that early usually you have <laughs> no. to uh, uh wait till people wake up at 3 p.m yeah <laughs> yeah but he was a you know i think you kind of mentioned that too in a later episode with chris lee where you talk about van halen and you know that's like the complete opposite yeah. but uh he was a great guest and you guys really hit it off and you, you can hear that in the interview, just you can hear you guys take off and start just talking about whatever. Um, and so, you know, when they, when they have something else, you know, we'll, we'll have them back on or maybe some of the other members too, but um, you know, without further ado, listen to Braun here. Sounds good. I feel like we've been invited to all these really cool sort of pop culture moments, you know, throughout the, the years. Yeah. Uh, whether it be Aqua Teen Hunger Force or Game of Thrones or Bill and Ted's, it's always one of these things where you just don't see it coming, you know, and they kind of just sort of land in your lap and you go, oh, cool. Yeah, we'll do that, of course, you know. Sure. 
Yeah, yeah. It's almost like a, a Z League thing. Uh, to, yeah. To use, use another movie reference to that. I, right. Yeah. I can now use confidently, knowing that you'll get. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the Game of Thrones thing is fascinating. Uh, you know, the the phenomena of that show and and the world it created and what it meant to fantasy fans to finally see something, you know, that uh, had the authenticity, but also the uh, the ambition and and you know world class you know craft to match the the imaginations that they've had for all these years it, you know it meant a lot to a lot of people it must have been really cool for you to to uh i started to say do a walk-on but i guess it was more of a walker on yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh but you guys were on you were on li both living and dead if i recall yes yeah <laughs> i mean yeah that was like mind-blowing you know to be asked when all that came came about we were i think we, yeah we were on tour and we played a, a big festival in the uk with uh I think it was Download Festival. It's like Iron Maiden or Metallica, Motorhead, Alice in Chains, a whole bunch of bands. Nice. And uh, after the gig, I think it was our last show or second to last show uh, on that tour. We were all feeling pretty beat, so we all took off and went back to the hotel. And Brent stayed because he wanted to hang out and watch Metallica and stuff. And um, he ended up meeting Dan Weiss and a few members of the cast that were there hanging out you know they came up to brent they're like hey can we get our picture with you and he's like yeah sure you guys sound you sound like you're from the states where you know where you're from and they're like oh we're from la cool what are you doing in town oh we're here filming a tv show oh cool what tv show game of thrones but get the fuck out of here you know? <laughs> <laughs> so uh you know um our publicist emma was there with brent and they got they exchanged information and stuff and they said hey if you ever heard in belfast that's where we do a majority of the filming um the and next so we day. just the next day yeah <laughs> so uh we ended up starting a tour in ireland and we flew in the day early and went to belfast and you know stayed up we were on in probably one of the most memorable episodes which was the hard yeah. episode uh with uh that epic it was really amazing you know to be a part of and you know looking back on it i mean it was amazing to be there kind of hanging out with the white walkers you know yeah. i just remember being in this this tent it was kind of cold out it was cold up there it was, they filmed in this big quarry that was north of belfast huh. and you know you're there for like 14 hours and you're kind of laying in the mud and uh i had gotten uh stabbed in the stomach and then had my throat slit like 20 or 30 times in a row by a nice hungarian man showbiz glamour <laughs> yeah yeah and uh i'm like sitting in this tent with the the scariest white walker that makeup just looks insane like there's no real i mean you're with a white walker you know right the there's real no humanity deal. there's right. no humanity yeah. in the face <laughs> you're like you know they're doing something in post to like fix that up to make it look extra scary which they are but when you're sitting with it it's like that is really scary but the guy was a sweetheart you know and he's just <laughs> sitting there and he's like kind of just upset because he's got this hot chocolate but there's no straw and he can't drink it because you can't ruin the prosthetics that are on his face you know so he's like uh sitting there complaining can you get me a straw please i'd like to drink this hot cocoa but i don't have a fucking straw you know? <laughs> that's awesome that was braun baylor did you say brain did you say braun I, I, said, I said Bran early on, and I'm, I'm glad you caught me on it. Um, well, you know, it's all about, you know what, it's about brand. 
it's all about brands. So <laughs> yeah. if your brand is brawn, you got to protect your brand and not let it be brawn. Is it is it brand recognition or brawn recognition? I can never remember. That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> it's lack of recognition right there. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so we'll definitely have him back. You know, I, I, I did a little bit of drumming in high school, but, uh, I don't think I'd ever tell him that. Um, really? Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. Most people don't because I wasn't very good. Yeah, I did. <laughs> uh, I was the MC of my high school talent show. No way. Yeah. And it was the first time I was on stage in front of people and I became a real ham instantly. <laughs> Uh, now that, that upsets me because I know that happened before cell phones were invented, which means there's no footage of that. There's one photo that survived, and it's an unfortunate one. Uh, you'll be glad to hear. But I'm wearing a tuxedo, which is okay. And I'm on stage, and I have a microphone, which is appropriate. And I have a camera, like a, a 35 millimeter, you know. And I used I was working for a yearbook and for newspaper that, that semester. And I told the audience, I'm going to take a picture of you. This is at Miramar High in South Florida. And um, so I, oh, and also uh, I have a hat on. It's, uh, you know, Goofy, the Disney character. Yeah. You're familiar with Goofy? Yes. Part of Goofy. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. So there's Goofy, right? And he's got the long ears. It's one of those hats that has a bill. It's his face, his nose, and then the ears that droop down to shoulder length. <laughs> Very distinguished look. Uh, I, was so say, I, I, hear, I hear that hat does really well with a tuxedo. It really does. It sends, it's like a, it's like being like a Supreme Court justice with, uh, or like an, one of the old British judges with the, 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 the wig. You know, it, it may seem silly, but really it's distinguished. It really is. Um, so I have this hat and this tux and the camera, and I'm going to take a picture of the audience. But you know what? I didn't have as a mic stand. So I have a mic and a camera and a hat. But what do you do with your, how do you take a picture with a 35 millimeter camera with a microphone? So I, here's the bad part. I put it in my mouth oh. so, and I'm holding it in my mouth in, in this picture and it just is not the look that you want. You know, <laughs> you don't want to have something sticking out of your mouth when you have a goofy hat on, literally nope. goofy hat and, and a tuxedo and, and you seem to be paparazzi. There's a real bad moment. And uh, if, you're, if anybody's hearing this in the actual podcast, it's because Evan's going to leave, the, leave this in just, just to undermine my credibility. I, I sense it already. Well, you know, if you want, I would love for you to share that on social media so our fans can see, but mostly so that I can see. Never um, going to happen. <laughs> um, you know, that leads us a little bit into our next segment. That's frightening. Which is, <laughs> uh, our next segment is with the great Dylan Sprouse. And uh -huh. he's, he came on to talk about his comic Sun Eater, which is still coming out for heavy metal, which is great for him. But you had asked him a question more about um, how his come up through the Disney family had been very similar to someone else, which was Kurt Russell. And you guys talk a bit about Kurt Russell and some secrets that you had both learned about him. Yeah. So, yeah. It's interesting. I'm fascinated by Kurt Russell. I have such a man crush on Kurt Russell and, and uh, I've been lucky enough to interview him, which I'll talk about during the snippet probably, but uh, on, on Dylan Sprouse, I, you know, he's a, a guy that's had a lot of success uh, with the sweet life of Zach and Cody and uh, working with his brother side by side. And now he's transitioning to the next chapter of his career. And, and much like Miley Cyrus or Haley Mills or, uh, you know, uh, uh, Britney Spears, uh, there's the challenge of how do you transition from Disney to uh, a grown-up career? And that's how we got on the topic. But 
Um, I was really impressed with Dylan. I didn't know him before we spoke uh, for this interview. And uh, he's a pretty serious guy and as far as his uh, pursuits of creativity. And I'm really rooting for him. That was what I, I felt like I really liked the guy. Uh, you know, as a journalist, you're not supposed to pick favorites or you can't really kind of, you know, put people ahead of each other. But uh, you do have a soft spot for certain people. And he seems like somebody that's got a bright future ahead of him. Definitely. I can see that. Well, that's great to hear. And uh, here's that segment from Dylan's episode. With many interesting endeavors underway, and this is one of them, but um, in, in kind of brushing up on the stuff you're doing, it reminded me of somebody uh, in, a, in a roundabout way. It reminded me of Kurt Russell, uh, who was the biggest Disney star of the 70s. And who, when he stepped away, you know, uh, he the first thing he really did was win an Emmy for playing Elvis in a TV movie. It was a great TV movie. And then he became, you know, Snake Plissken and he became the guy in The Thing. And, and you think about him walking out in Escape from New York and how different he looks than the, the computer wore tennis shoes or, or, you know, like the Disney stuff he had been doing just two or three years earlier. Um, I mean, I think that that's probably, for me at least, he, he probably represents my biggest acting idol in a way. I mean, he's, he's just managed himself in such an interesting and diverse career that is so pulpy yet rich. And at the same time, it, it has such substance and, and he's been able to navigate that in such a unique way where you see him on screen and he's just performative in every single thing that he does without, without you really feeling like he's losing who you think he is as an actor and, and not that, that I mean to me he's one of my all-time favorites and I take great great inspiration from his films so oh yeah well he is tremendous um friend so one of my buddies uh Brendan Columbus's father is uh, Chris Columbus and they worked on Christmas Chronicles together and apparently uh Kurt Russell does actually save all of his money in gold ingots under uh, in like a vault in his house which you know what makes him twice as badass to me I just feel like that <laughs> Very on brand, and I just love it. <laughs> it's, uh, it makes me wonder, wonder what his address is. That's my first question, yeah. is what's his address? Uh, and then my second I, thing I, is... Yeah, I would be interested to find his address, but I also know he's the kind of guy, if you tried it, he'd kick your ass. So <laughs> Would not go for it. Would not go for it. Yeah, exactly. I'm not sure I'd test him. <laughs> you know, he had a fantasy career that was cut short. He told me a funny story, uh, and I, it's not a well-known story, and better yet, it's a short one. But he was, uh, you know that film, I don't, uh, I don't know if you've seen it, Lady Hawk? It's a great Richard Donner movie from the 80s. Well, I haven't seen it. It's a really cool fantasy movie with Rutger Hauer um, coming off of Blade Runner and stuff, uh, and uh, Michelle Pfeiffer, and they're, they're in love, but there's a curse upon them, and it, it's that she turns into an... Uh, an uh, I remember this right. She turns into a uh, a hawk, and he turns into like a wolf, and they're human, but only for like one second a day. And then you know, one of them is always human; the other is an animal. So they get to see each other like at sunset and sun sundown uh, sunrise, and that's it. So it's like to torment them. Anyway, Kurt Russell was supposed to star in it, and he went and he was in this film, and they started filming and everything. And he he said like he was standing in a trailer, and he's looking in the mirror, and he's like. I'm wearing tights, man. I'm wearing tights. You know, and he's like, I know that these aren't tights, but I'm wearing tights, man. And he goes out to Dick Don Richard Donner, the, who's, you know, the guy that directed Superman and directed Lethal Weapon and Omen, The Omen. Yeah. And, and he goes, and he's a big, loud guy, big, booming voice, a great sense of humor. 
a big stoner too. So he's a, a super funny guy. Uh, and uh, Kurt Russell goes to him and says, you know, I just, I don't know, man. I, I don't know. I don't think this is for me. And he's like, what do you know? This is you. This is you. Of course this is you. Whatever you do is you. You become whatever you do. This is you. And uh, Kurt goes, well, you know, hey, you know, it would be really good in this role. Now they're on the set, right? Like he's in costume. Like this is not like script phase. <laughs> like they, they're making this. And um, and he goes, you know, it'd be really good in this movie. And Dick Donner says, no, who? And he goes, Rucker Hauer. Have you heard about Rucker Hauer? The guy who was in Blade Runner. And, you know, and he's like, oh, do you think we can get him? He goes, oh, I'm sure we can get him. I'll call him. So Kurt calls up, hey, Rucker Hauer, do you want to be in this movie called Lady Hawk and like Michelle Pfeiffer and Matthew Broderick and working with Dick Donner? And <laughs> Rucker Hauer's like on the next plane. And, and Kurt Russell's like, get, gets out, get me out of these tights. And he gets to the airport. <laughs> and then I said, so, wait, so where'd you go from there? What did you do? And he goes, well, I flew straight to New York because there was Goldie Hawn. And she was in, a, in a, uh, an apartment or she was in a hotel room there. So how'd that go? And he goes, really well. <laughs> that's the whole that's story amazing what a great story <laughs> yeah he would not like to be uh in a a uh a film version of sun eater so just take that right off the table just so you know yeah yeah i'm marking that off the list so that was dylan sprouse you know when he does his next thing which is probably you know become governor or president <laughs> you know we'll inter we'll try to get him on the show again yeah um but i have one final one for you here we go, yeah. number five. This one is actually more recent, so it's probably more fresh in our mind, but um, it is from the great creator of Hellboy, uh, which I, <laughs> I know. Are you Mike Mignola? Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, he's, like, he's like Voldemort, you know, he whose name shall not be said for uh, Evan, but not because it's going <laughs> to activate some sort of ancient curse. It's just the spelling of that name. It, it does not instill confidence in people because no, no one thinks they're saying me. it right. Especially me. Um, so how do you spell it? You spell it M-I-N-G, right? M-I-N-G-N-O-L-A. It's like the easiest name to spell, the hardest name to say. Yeah. And I, I'm just, I think it's, you know, it's like golf. Like, I feel like I could, like I'm decent at golf, but it's like a mental thing. Like, I, I just can't do it uh, when I get in my own head. Um, I can't say his name, but uh, I'm glad you said it. Um, hopefully he doesn't hear that, but. Um, He's standing so, right behind you. <laughs> that'd be terrifying. <laughs> um, but uh, here's a segment from his which he's told this story before but I just find it a great it's I find it a great story and he tells it so well which is when he was working on Bram Stoker's Bram Stoker Bram Stoker? No sorry Bram Bram, <laughs> Bram. Um, Bram, Bram. Like with here's, a, here's a great story that he tells so well about when he was working on Bram Stoker's Dracula with C Coppola and uh, I don't want to give anything away for any new listeners, but someone else is there that he was not expecting. And on top of that, he gets into an argument with them, which is like, it gives me anxiety thinking about. <laughs> you know, uh, Mike is, he is a guy who has strong opinions and uh, he is very reluctant to be soft and freely. Like he's, he, he tells you, what what's going on and he's real blunt and uh uh he does not suffer fools lightly and uh for all these reasons and more uh he is like hellboy and and uh that's awesome <laughs> yeah so here's that story from him um from who <laughs> from mike from mike. Oh. mr mike mignola there we mignola. go mignola yeah is that Very right good. 
Yeah, okay. <laughs> Pretty close. <laughs> so here's Mike. Now you, you worked, uh, one of the things that you've done in your career, you've had so many amazing, interesting departures from the expected course. Uh, and one of them is the, the, the work that you did on Dracula, the film, feature film, the Francis Ford Coppola film. Tell me, you don't have to, uh, I don't mean to exhaust you by making you tell a yarn, but it, it led to an encounter with George Lucas and, and Francis Ford Coppola that no reasonable human being could ever expect. Um, and After all, all my years, it is still the strangest case of being it. And I've had a couple, especially with Del Toro, I've had some very weird, never thought I'd be here kind of moments. Sure. Um, but the Coppola Lucas thing, I think because it was the first, I yeah. mean, the very first film I ever worked on, and I, and I did very, very little, very little on that film. But I did it directly with Francis Ford Coppola. Yeah. I mean, that's literally day one working on a film was with Francis. So that's insane. Yeah. Um, and I had done very little, mostly most of my involvement, because I was in San Francisco, I would go up to Zoetrope Studios offices uh, and to pick up photo reference for the comic. And I got called in to just consult there was a, a model that Francis wasn't happy with and I, I came in and he basically told me what he was thinking and I tried to draw it up just to pass it on to the sculptors and I did that and I think I, I don't I, it, uh, there was a couple other little things I did but I think I was they could tap me because I, I could you know go from my apartment to Zoetrope in 15 minutes Right. Um, so I got involved in a couple little things. You're like a courtroom and, sketch artist, like quick, draw this. <laughs> yeah, but I, but again, I, I think it only happened like that only happened like once. And then there's oh. a castle, there's a castle that appears in kind of a flashback dream thing right. for about 30 seconds. And I and somebody else designed that castle. We did in the old days of fax machines. They, somebody would do a drawing, they'd fax it to me, and I would do a drawing and fax it back. And somehow that ended up being in the film. That's awesome. um, so there wasn't much. So I get when I get this call out of the blue to come up and watch a rough cut of the movie. But it's really just, as I recall, it was come up early. There's going to be food. <laughs> Because it's Coppola, you know, like no, he's, but, food but is such again, a big thing. I, was, I wasn't even thinking, I guess I assumed Francis would be there, but I thought it was just going to be a, because Zoetrope was a pretty relaxed place. Right. And I was thinking it would just be a, a couple guys sitting around in a room watching the movie. Sandwiches. And maybe there'd be pizzas, you know? Yeah. So when I get up there, I, I still remember walking into Zoetrope and it seemed like somebody was there and, and pointed downstairs and said the lunchroom or whatever is downstairs. And I go downstairs and again, you know, it's, your memory gets distorted over time. Sure. But I seem to recall that as I walked down the stairs, I could see the table and I, recognized right away that there was Francis and George Lucas sitting at the table and the table was set for three people. And I remember <laughs> thinking, who's the third guy? And then thinking, oh shit, that's me. And it was just how how fucking weird is that? And and I don't know I, at what point did George Lucas ask Francis, who's coming? 
Right. Who's the third guy? Because the impression I got when I got there was George Lucas was going, who the fuck's this guy? <laughs> I think, I think George is like the president of the United States. He doesn't go into a room unless he's been briefed on who's going to be there. Right. Um, Not a lot of chance and, encounters. And again, I I had met Francis a few times, so I was and, and he's you've met him. I mean, he's yeah. such a sweet, easygoing guy. It's very easy to be relaxed with him. Um, though in the lunchroom, all around the walls were framed photos. Have you been there? The, no, the no. lunchroom. They're mm. they're they're framed framed photos of him on the set of Apocalypse Now. Right. At least that's the ones I remember. So everyone's here like, da, 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 I'm having dinner. This is fine. And then you look up over at these pictures and you go, oh, it's just a big sign that says you shouldn't be here. Yeah, Godfather 2. Remember, <laughs> remember where you are. Right, um, right. <laughs> and then, you know, and, and dinner was great. And we had wine and we had cappuccino. And and uh, it feels weird telling this story because I've told this story so many times. But it but is I my best. You. It is. It is my best story. Um, and and so then we watched a rough cut of the picture. And I'm sitting between them. It's like yeah. a couch. And there's three of us sitting on this couch or a long couch. But anyway, I'm sitting between them. And I've got to go to the bathroom so damn bad. And I'm not going to make it to the movie. And there's a, <laughs> there's a thing your brain will never get ready for where your brain actually has to say, all right, do you ask the guy who made Star Wars or the guy who made The Godfather where the bathroom is? And his brain just goes, we never thought we'd have to have <laughs> solved that riddle. Um, and, and then we kind of didn't really argue, but we discussed. George had some specific ideas about things that he thought should be more explained yeah. in the film. This is the George... I met the George Lucas who would, he hadn't done it yet, but he would make those three Jeez. Star Wars movies where everything is explained. Right. And George, you just saw that he just thought he gave the audience no credit. Right, right. You must explain everything right. to everybody. Um, well, he makes blueprints. He likes, you know, he's an engineer at heart, you know. I, I did, I, I think somebody, somebody pointed out to me, I'm not sure it's exactly true, but they said in those other three Star Wars movies he made, if you saw people on a spaceship, you would always see the ship land. Otherwise, how'd they get to the planet? Right. So, well, they were on a ship and now they're not on a ship. You could kind of assume right. that at some point the ship landed and they got off. Ah, you got to show right. that. Cause, because there's a scene... That's interesting. And again, I hate to, I, I don't want to bang no. on George Lucas too much, but it's just, it's, there was a scene where Anthony Hopkins, Winona Ryder, are being tormented by these three vampire women. Right. And as originally filmed, it's a beautiful transition. Uh, Hopkins draws this magic circle in the snow, and then it kind of tips up and kind of dissolves into the sunrise. Right. Go from a circle to a different circle. And when writer kind of wakes up and looks around like, uh, where'd Anthony Hopkins go? Right, right. And then Hopkins appears 
on the wall of the castle. And he's got the heads of those three women. And he's got a knife the size of a baseball bat. Kokori knife, as in the book. Um, He's got the vampire heads. He's got blood all over him. He's got this big knife. And George said, where'd he get the heads? And it's not like calling back to something that happened 20 minutes earlier in the film. It's like, no, no, no. About 25 seconds earlier, we saw these women giving these guys shit. Yeah, right. And they had heads on. And, and they had their heads on. And the, the amount of blood that was on Hopkins and the knife would seem to be a pretty clear indicator of how he got the heads. Yeah. But n- now... There's a scene in the film where Hopkins goes in and I and I I drew the scene the next day. Uh, it was very it was very strange the, the very next day. I mean, after you have this weird night with these two guys <clears throat> and I'll never forget Coppola walking us out. And two things happened simultaneously. As the doors closed at Zoetrope. I think I knew that whatever work I had done on the film was over. So when the doors closed, there was a sense of, I was in there. I was having dinner with those guys and it'll never happen again. Yeah. I've been, I've been expelled from paradise, you know? <laughs> and I thought I can spend the rest of my life clawing and scraping to get back in there, or I can make my peace with it and say, that was cool. That was weird. Let's move on. Sometimes um, spaceships land. Sometimes they land, right? <laughs> but also, I was I was suddenly alone with George Lucas on the sidewalk, and <laughs> I remember saying to George, "Hey, we went to the same junior college, and we had about thirty seconds of slightly awkward conversation about Modesto." Oh my! And then I said, "And then I said, nice to meet you," and I took off. Yeah. And I th- I got to think he must have been so relieved when I left. As opposed to me saying, hey, now's the time to yeah. ask you a bunch of Star Wars questions. Yeah. Um, but yeah, then, then the next day, again, it's so fucking weird. You, you, the next yeah. morning you wake up and you go, that happened? That was crazy. And I, you, you must have seen the Heart of Darkness documentary, sure. right? Yeah, I love it. I put it on. I've always loved that. I have a copy. I put it on. I was watching it. And while I was watching it, the phone rang. <laughs> I turn off the sound, but the picture's still on, and it's Francis, who's never called me. I've right. talked to his assistant. I've talked to his son on the phone, but uh-huh. I've never had the experience of picking up the phone. Mike, Francis. And you're like, oh, fuck. That's yeah. weird. I can now watch you make Apocalypse <laughs> Now while I'm talking to you on the phone. <laughs> and I remember at one point, oh, he's talking about, like, can you – what do you think about drawing up a couple of these scenes that George mentioned? And I don't remember what I said, but at one point he goes, I know you and George didn't really agree. And I'm like, oh shit, that happened? Really? It was clear that George Lucas and I were not necessarily <laughs> arguing, but I remember there were a couple of points where George would say something. I'd go, yeah, really? Uh. Yeah. So, so I drew up a couple of <laughs> scenes and, and the weirdest was, uh, and George was completely right about this one. Um, the way the film originally opened, you saw Dracula on the battlefield. Yeah. 
And then he kind of has this, oh shit, something's wrong. And he goes rushing home and one of our writers laying there dead. Right. And, and George had said, you got to see him go off to war. Hmm. Not, spe- not, not necessarily because how do we know why he's at war? It's like a, right. It wasn't that so much as for the emotional thing. You need to see right. him say goodbye to his wife. Right. Before so that see. you give a shit when she's dead. Yeah. You don't meet her dead. Yeah. So yeah. Francis said to me, you have an idea how to do that? I'm the schmo who's drawn the comic book adaptation, right? So <laughs> this is the thing you have to explain to people. You have your work brain right. and you have your fan brain. That's right. And the fan brain says, he made The Godfather. Look on the TV. You can watch him make Apocalypse Now. Yeah. But the work brain goes, you know, I actually do have an idea. Yeah, exactly. I remember, I remember it seemed like it took 45 minutes to explain because I said, do you remember the old Charlton Heston movie, El Cid? And he's like, well, kind of. I go, oh, there's this great scene in a barn with, yeah. with uh, Charlton Heston and Sophia Loren. And it's all very romantic and it's all very quiet. And they're going to go off or no one will ever know that he's the greatest warrior in Spain. Right. And they open the barn door. And there's... And there's the entire Spanish army chanting, yeah. seed, seed, seed. And of course, I, I'm sure I did my god-awful Charlton Heston and Sophia Loren imitations. Oh, see, that, that probably didn't help. <laughs> oh, 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 because Charlton Heston's like, you know, Sophia Loren's clutch Charlton Heston. She's like, why? And he's saying, first Spain. And I said, that's, <laughs> that's pretty good. That's the opening. That's the opening you need. And he goes, can you draw that up? And I said, I don't do storyboards, but he said, draw it up at a comic book page. Yeah. So I did this scene as a comic book page and that's in the movie that's how the movie opens yeah that's fantastic which i didn't it was so close again i didn't know really how movies work it was so close to the release of the film right even that that scene i i did with with hopkins going in and cutting off the vampire women's heads i did it all you know hopkins from the back because i thought we can get any any guy in a hat and a cape but you look at the film he turns around and looks at you so you know it's hi they got me back for a reshoot yeah. and that opening scene had gary oldman and anthony hopkins uh and winona right it had everybody in it yeah and to go and see the movie and the movie literally opens on a scene that i drew yeah and you go oh there's anthony hopkins standing where i told somebody <laughs> to have him standing yeah yeah so it's it's it, it's so surreal uh, that that was my first experience. Now, at the end of the episode, Jeff, I, we just wanted to say, first of all, thanks not only to our guests, but of course, to all of our listeners for, you know, coming with us on this journey through 2020 and listening to us every week and providing great feedback for us. But we also wanted to kind of tease a couple things that are coming up. Yeah, we have a, a, some big plans for 2021, like a lot of people, you know, uh, Evan, you were just saying the other day that um, you feel like there's a lot of people that have a pent up in, uh, enthusiasm for next year. Like the, a lot of people that uh, feel like they're at a starting line because they want to get this year in their rear view mirror. Um, and I think you're right. I think that there, uh, there's a lot of challenges ahead for everybody, but I think there's also a spirit that's uh, a restlessness. Um, 
And uh, here at Mindspace, we were hoping this show gets bigger and, and better all the time. And uh, we're going to continue to uh, streamline and, and, and kind of find its future and its voice. But uh, yeah, we're going to do some fun stuff in, uh, in the weeks and months ahead. And I think we're going to have, for instance, some uh, kind of silly stuff. We're going to have uh, some trivia and some games. We're going to have a uh, Who Am I episode, I think, uh, where we're going to have famous people um, some of our well-known guests talk to somebody who is a mystery guest. So that kind of stuff. And um, we might do a musical episode. You know, maybe Evan will play drums. I don't know. Maybe not. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't know about that. Um, <laughs> I don't know how well the, the audio would sound on that, honestly. That's the real... <laughs> but yeah, we have a lot of... We're going to try to break the mold a little more this upcoming year and try new things, get more, a little more experimental, um, which I think, you know, will either be good or bad, but we won't know yeah. unless we try. And we're going to get, uh, we're going to get for all our listeners that if they subscribe, if you subscribe and, and you stick with us along the way, um, we're going to have a very special uh, treat for you. Everybody's going to get 3d glasses. So we're going to make the show 3d. It's going to be three. You you'll be able to listen to it in full stereoscopic visual depth but if you if you subscribe after this episode and you listen to it you'll get some behind the scenes as well such as jeff's table and my dog barking outside so it's very <laughs> exciting things for our listeners this week um and i think it'd be fun if we you know did a little bit of hinting at our guest for next week okay uh uh let's see next week's guest is somebody who um is well known for his role on the sci-fi series. Yes. And uh, a preserver, you know, like he's a preserver of ancient things. Yeah, he plays an FBI agent. And uh, there's so many FBI agents on television. You know, like, have you ever noticed that? Especially in oh, sci-fi yeah. and stuff. I mean, you got Twin Peaks and you got X-Files. And uh, it, I mean, literally dozens and dozens of shows um it'd be interesting to see the all-time list of the best fbi agents in television history um you got our guest next week he would be a contender he would be right there in the mix mm -hmm. um as uh someone who's has been a g-man for uh the boob tube and we'll have 13 reasons why he's one of the best for sure exactly so. i think we'd come up with at least 13 yeah but uh you know we're looking forward to talking to him and we look forward to the hundreds of episodes we do after this so absolutely onward and upward and i look forward to having our very own hologram hit hologram series and uh um astral projection uh tie-in episodes and uh, and again i can't wait for the show to be in 3d so we can charge more for the tickets <laughs> yeah yeah me too yeah speaking of um back to our malcolm mcdowell um i hope you're not forgetting my 2.5 percent uh you know it's the checks in the mail. Okay. All right. Good to know. Well, Jeff, uh, this has been a great, you know, recap. I think every good TV show and show needs a good recap episode. So I think it's a great way to take a week off. Yep. <laughs> so I, you know, we, we were recording this right before Christmas. So Jeff, happy holidays to you. Have a wonderful Christmas. And, you know, we'll talk to you in Mindspace season two.
Absolutely. Uh, it's been a lot of fun and just getting started. So 2021 onward and upward. Mindspace season two, electric boogaloo. I can't wait for the cardboard. I'm going to spin on my head and it's going to be great. <laughs> did you know that breakdancing in the next Olympics? Did you know that? No, I did not. They know added breakdancing to the Olympics. That's not even a joke. That's not even a joke. That's a thing. Now's our chance to be Olympians. I, I think we should take it for a spin. What's the worst that could happen? Yeah, no, seriously. Ooh. Ouch. <laughs> um, all right, Jeff. Well, I'll, I'll talk to you again next week. All right, man. Take care. Happy holidays. You too.